<clears throat> I, I couldn't get this sermon off the ground on Tuesday. I had actually studied for the text I intend to preach on today, actually the week prior, and I ended up only using some of the text I studied for for last Sunday's message. And I wrote a less than spectacular introduction on Tuesday, and I knew pretty quickly it wasn't going anywhere. And then Tuesday afternoon, in fact, if all of you are on the prayer train, I believe we were given tons of prayer requests on Tuesday. And one of the items that came in that we put on the prayer chain was that David Manley, a Christian father who had had cancer earlier this year, had been declared cancer-free. Well, he had a stroke, and then he was diagnosed with seven brain tumors and given a month to live. And in any time when, when diagnosis like this happens, there is a, a myriad of Christian responses. There are those, of course, who submit to the sovereignty of God and confess and profess that God knew this, God saw this coming. But then some go so far to say that God planned or ordained or orchestrated this. Others say God knew and He merely permitted but maybe would not will, decree, or ordain, or want this. Of course, it's just a result of the fall. Some who have weak faith might let it shock them, set them back a bit, and say, well, how do you know the reason it even is a God? Pray all you want, but it sounds pretty set in stone, and if you pray and He dies, then I'm not surprised. And some might buckle under the onslaught of sickness and diseases and think all the times God seems to let these things overtake people now, versus all the stories of His healing in the Gospel accounts, and see discrepancy. What I began to think about when I hear, heard about David Manley, and I heard his name and what I, what I knew of him, he and his family started attending the Nazarene church for a bit before uh, I married Christy and moved away. And while I didn't really know him outside of talking at the potluck table here and there, there was a legacy that he left on another, and that is what really comes back to me. There was a, a friend, of, a close friend of mine, we'll just call him Bob, and Bob had been around most of my upbringing, and most of my upbringing Bob had been a bit of a clown, a jokester, a prankster, and didn't seem to know how to be serious. And then Bob suffered the loss of one of his best friends before his time. And that sent Bob down a spiral of depression. And during that time, I believe God then orchestrated things to where Bob came into contact with David Manley. Other reasons were for them getting to know each other were at play, but the main thing is, is that David began to disciple Bob. Where Bob didn't have any disciplers, I don't think that's a word, but I'm using it, in his parents. And before too long, Bob became someone else entirely. His faith came alive. In fact, Bob would tell me that he didn't even know if he was saved before being discipled by David. And while it is hard and questions do abound and what other uh, people who feel the pain and sting of what is happening to David right now, it's always good to recall what David has done. And I realized how David and his story fits in with the person who Paul is going to be talking about in our passage today. 
and other disciplers and teachers and workers of the gospel and, and how their left life and death situations play with emotions of those whom they impacted. I invite you to take a look with me as in Philippians 2. Uh, Phil said you had no more chances to stand. There was one more chance. <laughs> if you would like to stand. <laughs> I'm going to be unpacking verses 16 to the end of the chapter, but let's back up to verse 14 to get some context. Philippians 2, beginning with 14. <clears throat> Paul writes, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, without fault, in a crooked and perverse generation, in which you shine as lights in the world, as you hold forth the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I learn how you are doing. I have nobody else like him who will genuinely care for your needs. For all the others look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth that as a child with his father, he has served with me to advance the gospel. So I hope to send him as soon as I see what happens with me. And I trust in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I thought it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my needs. For he has been longing for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He was sick, indeed nearly unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less anxious. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for your deficit of service to me. Let's pray. Father, as we read about people we don't know, about situations that are far removed, we do know they took place at a date and time on the calendar. What we also know and trust and believe and hold as conviction is that you preserve these words for us. So Holy Spirit, what is your reason? Bring those reasons to light and to life today. Use them to inspire our hearts to obey you. Thank you for their examples. And help us, like they do, to take joy in the things we do day to day. And in the things you call us to do that are not day to day. Holy Spirit, we want to hear your voice and not mine. Thank you for the forgiveness of sins through Jesus. Thank you for the power and the ability by your Spirit to obey things you call us to do. And so have your way in our hearts and minds. Speak to us in these moments. Give us open ears to hear you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> We're handling in this passage three men, really. Three men who are laboring for the gospel and are doing so in joy, finding joy. 
Paul himself, Timothy, and then lastly, Epaphroditus. And that's not a sickness, that's his name. (laughs) Those are the three men, the three case studies of labor we get to unpack. But first, let's look at Paul in, in sacrificial joy. Paul segues into this short summary of himself after he encouraged the Philippians to not follow, really, the example set by the ancient Israelites, if you were here last week. But Paul is using language that should remind Jewish readers or those familiar with the ancient Jewish stories to not complain or argue like the Israelites did. Right? You remember, Moses and God, they let us out here to die. How are we going to eat? Look at those tribes. They have our promised land. I guess we're toast. We can't make it. And in his last farewell, his public speech before we hear uh, about his death, Moses called such doubters a perverse and crooked generation. And it's these terms that Paul uses and says, don't be like them. Rather, shine as lights in the world as you hold forth the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. There's our terms, rejoice. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul is basically saying, it would bring me joy to know that my efforts, my labors, my pains, my, to use his own words, 40 lashes minus one, three times I was beaten with rods, once I received a stoning, three times I was shipwrecked, I spent a night and day in the open sea, in my frequent journeys I have been in danger from rivers and from bandits, in danger from my countrymen and from the Gentiles, in danger in the city and in the country, in danger on the sea and among false believers, in labor and toil, and often without sleep, in hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from these external trials, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And Paul is saying, it would bring me joy to know that all this was not done in vain. But rather, the fruit of my labors, the Philippians among them, would be shining lights, the righteous remnant, not the perverse crooked ones that Moses talked about in his day. Sacrifices become worth it when we know what the sacrifices produce. Fruitful Christians. Faithful believers and followers. Good citizens in the kingdom. Then Paul could say, I did not run or labor in vain. But I don't want us to hear it this way. I don't think Paul is saying, so it's on you Philippians, right? As in, if you guys mess it up, if I have to give another Moses speech and call you the perverse and crooked generation, why, then it was in vain. I know this because God says of His Word, my word that proceeds from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and it will prosper where I send it. And we know that even when the Israelites failed, even their failures were redeemed to show us where not to go. (laughs) That's what we read last week, that these things took place 
as examples to keep us from craving evil things as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, says Paul. Moses' labors may have been in vain as far as procuring a vastly faithful following, but even in the faithlessness of Israel, we have an example. But I want to back up and look at what Paul said here in verse 17. But even if I'm being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. An offering. You know, we, we read this stuff all the time from Paul. We just read it above in a long list of things he's experienced as he's literally crisscrossed the ancient world and suffered to bear fruit for the kingdom. How many of us thought twice about getting in a warm car and coming to a fairly comfortable building so we could judge, I mean, uh, enjoy the service together, right? Paul finds joy in what he's doing. It'll hurt. It'll be painful. I'll suffer. It'll be hard. It'll be uncomfortable. They might reject me. They might think I'm crazy. They might say mean things. But Paul believes something about this and has experienced something about this. Indeed, he's saying something here that I don't know if you and I are are quick to believe. What if hard things and painful things are sources of joy? I see such a vivid picture of this with the cross, with suffering, bleeding, extreme pain in sight, but the author of Hebrews has the audacity to write about Christ. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. i got to tell you, as a pastor and sermon writer who pulls his hair out and feels guilty that he writes a message, I feel like most of the week I still manage to write a message all week and then on Saturday to rewrite a different message. And then in my corner of the little kingdom ground that I'm trying to plant fruit for Jesus on, I'm not bleeding yet, thank God. I'm not suffering stonings or beatings. But I feel frustration. And I ask myself as I read this, observing Paul, have I found joy in this? Joy in my labors? Paul did. It was sacrificial, brutal. Some fellow believers even, you remember this, we went through the book of Acts a while ago, as he's heading towards Jerusalem to suffer, other believers were saying, don't do it. You will suffer. And it's because he listened to God that he did go, got arrested, and it's why he's now in Rome writing a letter to the Philippians. Sacrificial joy. It's worth it, says Paul. Christ didn't only call you to salvation. Do you know that? Christ did not only call you to salvation. He'll be calling you to something else. And it might be painful, but it will produce joy. That's Paul's labor. What about his friend Timothy? That's next where, where Paul turns to. Timothy, a loyal partner in the faith. Paul writes, Now I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I learn how you are doing. I just want to pause right here, because let's think about this. Paul is in Rome, in prison. He's writing a letter to a church. Yes, he planted. Certainly within the decade previous, the church has been likely persisting. No doubt Paul left some leaders there. 
But Paul's not only writing a letter to this church, he is now sending someone. Paul calls later in his life, and I think here in a few minutes, his son. As you read Acts 16, Timothy was was present for the founding of Philippi too. So it will be a reunion of sorts. He already has a glowing recommendation about Timothy here in Philippians. We read in verse 20, I have nobody else like him who will genuinely care for your needs. For all the others look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth that as a child with his father, he has served with me to advance the gospel. Father and son, that's how Paul feels about him. So I hope to send him as well as I see what happens with me, and I trust in the Lord that I myself will come soon. If you were traveling today from Rome to Philippi, it's about an 800-mile drive, which includes a ferry ride. Now, uh, imagine with me, I don't know when Timothy got to Rome. I don't know if he was with Paul and Luke when they had this horrific journey across the Mediterranean, including an autumn nor'easter. We We studied that in Acts 27, a shipwreck. But Timothy is willing to go up 800 miles, probably land and sea, on behalf of Paul here. And I don't think it's easy for us to say, well, of course, it's Paul asking Timothy to do this. There's an account in 1 Corinthians 16 where Paul says about another fellow partner in the gospel, he says, now about our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to go to you with the believers, or with the brothers. He was not all inclined. Other translations bring out the meaning, not at all willing, or not at all his desire to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Now, we see Apollos exercising some free will, right? Paul had a plan for him. I wanted him to go to Corinth with the other brothers, headed that way. Acts 19.1 tells us that Apollos had been in Corinth before. But back in 1 Corinthians 16, Apollos didn't desire to do what Paul was encouraging him to do. So my point is call Paul a leader of the church all you want, and he is, but it seems evident in scriptures that sometimes he issues encouragements and exhortations, but other believers and ministers are not afraid to challenge him. Timothy's about to go 800 miles in the ancient world. Like Apollos with Corinth, Timothy had some history with Philippi. High commendations Paul has. I have nobody else like him who will genuinely care for your needs, for all the others look after their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. This is convicting. We see Timothy genuinely cares for the needs of the Philippians. And we know he genuinely cares because he's about to travel 800 miles on foot, maybe horseback, camel, on the sea, just to check in on them. It's a living out of what Paul had encouraged them earlier in the letter, namely back in verses 3 onward, in humility, consider others more important than yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and then heading into the testimony of Christ, God in the flesh, becoming the greatest contrast the sovereign of the universe, who is also the best example of humility. 
He outdoes all of us in humility, and He's a whole lot better than all of us. And Paul is saying, I even know others who look after their own interests, but not those of Jesus. And Timothy isn't like that. He genuinely cares. You know, most of the ministry training, church leadership training stuff I've done, whether it be from Bible college, from the denomination, from popular books, encouraged from other Christians, a lot of it, I know this will surprise you, but it's not contextualized to Woodland, right? (laughs) Ministry programs, church growth strategies, big budget scenarios, and I get that, and that's not me, and I don't think Woodland Friends Church should necessarily open up a coffee shop. Well, maybe, but but they shouldn't offer extra 47 extracurricular activities, right? But I do know and wonder and ask, how can we be a loyal partner in the gospel? There are many great local congregations in Kamei, Kuski, Clearwater Valley area. And there are many great congregations in our denomination in Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. And not, of course, notwithstanding the congregations of other denominations in our greater region. But I just wonder, do we genuinely care? Genuinely care. And just like in businesses and products and the push for shop local, buy local, it seems like there's a, a similar push in church culture, stay local. Right? Why do I care about Christians in that city when we have a missions field in our backyard? And I just, and I guess I'm audacious enough to say, why not both? With conviction, I ask, do you genuinely care for both local and far away? Are you concerned about brothers and sisters here in our greater region? Paul and Timothy had connections to Philippi, a church 800 miles away. You and I have connections to churches and a church office 425 miles away. And like Paul checks in with Philippi and shows an interest, so I think we can with our greater denomination. Why? Because we want them to control us? Or we just want them to do things for us? I don't know. Could it be maybe selfless? Maybe we could just genuinely care. Because we can accomplish more together, churches locally and regionally. For all the others look after their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Coming up in October, I intend to take a Sunday along with the rest of the churches, not only in the Northwest Yearly Meeting of Friends, but a Sunday in which the entire USA's community of evangelical friends will be observing a Sunday devoted to church planting. Because what I sense with Paul and Philippi and Timothy going to Philippi and with Apollos and Corinth Corinth, and with Paul writing letters to all these churches is what? Family. They know each other. They love each other. I remember preaching through Acts. And actually when Paul was first set aside along with Barnabas to go out on their missionary journeys, I just sensed family. Antioch was the third biggest city in the empire after Rome and Alexandria, started seeing this Christian population, and it being Gentile, that is non-Jewish territory, it was mostly a Gentile church. Jerusalem is still a bit hesitant when it comes to this question, what does it mean when Gentiles accept the Jewish Messiah? How does this work? So they send Barnabas up there, and Barnabas sees this metropolitan, highfalutin, intellectual city of Antioch, And apparently he thinks it's right up Paul's alley, which tells us a little bit about Paul. 
And so Barnabas goes to Tarsus, where Paul had been most of his Christian life after conversion, apparently. Brings him back, and you get this feeling that Antioch enjoys Barnabas and Paul. And then Acts 13 opens up with naming Barnabas and Paul, then still called Saul in the text, and a few other men. And I see it as Luke's way of saying, these were the leaders of Antioch. These were the ministers. And we read in Acts 13, 2 and 3, it says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. And after they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and then sent them off. And I brought this up when I preached the passage, and I echo now, how do you think Antioch Church feels about this? Some of the resistance Christians sometimes feel in their personal lives can come from other Christians, maybe their Christian body. Right? He says, Jesus says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yet even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Matthew would tell us, recording the same conversation, that Jesus is talking about the fact that the disciples must love Jesus more than these things. The love must be so greater, so much more passionate, that that the gap between a disciple's loyalty to Jesus and a disciple's loyalty to everyone else, that's the illustration of hate here. The point is, is friction can occur, resistance can occur. The Holy Spirit God, the Lord of His people, says about Barnabas and Saul, the former being nothing but a great character, as Luke records for us in Acts, the latter, of course, we're studying his book right now, a charismatic leader with a testimony that blows most testimonies out of the water. He's going to have a great resume, second greatest writer of the New Testament. And God shows up to Antioch and says, I need you to set these two apart. You ever have pastors who left the church you were at and it hurt? Valley View Nazarene, my home church growing up, every time a pastor left seemed like there was hurt feelings. Some arguing, it's not your time to leave. You can do more here. Others just leaving the church because they followed the pastor, not the church. And for Barnabas and Saul, and for those willing to listen at Antioch Church, this is God speaking. Because God sees His church as brothers and sisters, as family. And sometimes two big brothers need to set out and be fruitful and multiply. And so Barnabas and Paul will go out. And so Timothy, who was with Paul when Philippi is planted, he's going to go back to Philippi. But then lastly, we see that Philippi actually got to play the part of Antioch. They got to let go of one of their own sons and send him out from Philippi. They had a man in the game as well. Look at these verses 25 through 30. Look at the local soldier that he is. But I thought it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, <clears throat> fellow worker and fellow soldier, who was also your messenger and minister to my needs. So we hear this connection that for Paul, Epaphroditus is his brother, a fellow worker, a soldier, and he's also a Philippian. And just as Antioch had to say goodbye to Barnabas and Paul, so one day Philippi, perhaps even after forming, maybe Paul said, your messenger, which the Greek word is actually the exact same as apostle, which tells me that it was a weighty, significant leader. He was a weighty, significant leader, no doubt, in Philippi. And Philippi had to have that day where they 
heard that Epaphroditus, one of their own, needed to be about the Lord's ministry abroad. In Rome, no less. For he has been longing for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. He was sick indeed, nearly unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him also, not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. We don't know how long Paul had been in Rome here, but it could be upon hearing about his imprisonment that Philippi felt it wise to send Epaphroditus to Paul. Chapter 4 of your of Philippians here in verse 14 tell us that Epaphroditus brought likely an offering from Philippi to Rome. You know, when people were imprisoned in ancient Rome, it wasn't like the good old USA where you got benefits. Rather, families and social circles were expected to provide for the prisoners. If not, Rome didn't care. <laughs> so, even though Paul is in house arrest, he still needs to eat, and he can't do much if he can't leave the house. And so, as I said, 800 miles across the sea, if Epaphroditus decided to travel to Rome, especially late in the fall, sicknesses and illnesses abound. Typhoid fever and malaria. And whatever it was, Epaphroditus apparently caught something very severe. And I wonder if we ever feel like, or if we ever wonder, if we ever think, if I'm out doing God's work, He'll keep me safe. And if He doesn't keep me safe, I must have been wrong. And I'm just going to say, or you could have been right too. Like I touched on already, God called Paul to Jerusalem that time he got arrested, and it's eventually what got him to house arrest in Rome. Paul's friends could see it from miles away. You go there, you'll get arrested. His friends even heard from God, saying he'd be bound. But God was also calling Paul. I'm reminded of some missionaries we used to support. I mentioned them, Russ and Sarah Badgley. They, they were called, they felt called, they knew they were called, and they went to Ecuador to the Shuar native people. But then it seemed like health problems upon health problems upon health problems especially with Sarah and complicated pregnancies. And finally, before more happened, they returned home. They're attending church again in the Pacific Northwest. They're no longer on the missions field. I haven't talked to them in detail about their choices, but I do remember having a chat with them once after they'd been back. And I said, you know, God calls people for certain seasons. And I want you to know that it's probable He called you for a season. Maybe you felt like you should have stayed longer or you weren't successful, but there is absolutely no reason to think that. And in fact, I pointed your attention to one of the regions that EFM is considering. Largely they're considering because Russ and Sarah had pioneered there first for the EFM. They shed a light on the Shuar people. Even though they were health problems and they came back, it's more than likely God still called them. Epaphroditus went on behalf of Philippi to go see Paul in Rome, and we Christians like to think it's all good. Epaphroditus is sacrificially serving, doing those 800 miles. He's going to see the great and mighty Paul. He has an offering for him. Surely God will keep him safe. And then he gets sick. Direly sick. Almost dead. But God had mercy on him. But there's another thing Paul wants us to see here too. The words for nearly unto death, describing Epaphroditus, isn't the only time these original Greek words are used here, even in this chapter. To see this connection, the, the New American Standard says in Philippians 2.27 says that he was 
sick to the point of death. And Christ, likewise, in Philippians 2.8, says He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross. So Paul's words here, I believe, are twofold. Of course, he's simply describing the reality of what Epaphroditus went through. But he's also showing the Philippians an example of what he's encouraged them to have. The mind of Christ and to follow His example. An obedient example is that of their own, Epaphroditus. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may rejoice, and I may be less anxious. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for your deficit of service to me. In other words, Paul is likely saying, I know you've likely wanted me to send gifts, but you've been unable until you sent Epaphroditus. Welcome him and the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Men that Paul has described, and actually men like Paul himself. Paul who has endured hardship after hardship for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of churches like Philippi. Timothy who helped plant Philippi and is now willing to make a trip that may have set, made Epaphroditus sick. But Timothy is genuinely concerned, and he's concerned about the interests of Jesus. Honor men like Epaphroditus, says Paul, people who nearly die for the work of the Lord. And then there's this joy thing. The joy that Paul has in his own labors, the joy that Philippi should have in the labors of their own Epaphroditus, and it lets us know that we should find unrelenting joy in our own labors. I want you to know this, that if that in Christ, if you're working for Him, perhaps you have poured into children. Perhaps you have poured into family members, into neighbors. Perhaps you've poured into churches and ministries and organizations. And everything that you've poured into, if it's been in Christ and for Christ and for His glory, and if it's in His Word, then it's not in vain. His word won't return void. I want to end with something that that struck me from a book by a well-known pastor, John Piper. And I didn't go back to the book to get the exact words, but he said something like this. He said, What a tragedy if at the end of my life, and it's because it struck me, if I lay on my deathbed and say, Well, I didn't watch bad movies, I didn't cuss, I didn't smoke, didn't drink to excess, I went to church every Sunday, and I never did those sinful things that I judged others for doing. The point being is, what kind of legacy can I say that I left? Because what did I do for the Lord? Not what I didn't do. The Lord calls us to greater things than just simply avoiding bad things and going to church every weekend. He calls us perhaps to disciple a young man who just lost his best friend like David Manley did. He calls us maybe to visit a church, be their loyal partner, interested in the things of Jesus more than interested in oneself. He calls us to pour ourselves out for the things of Jesus, even willing to be pouring pouring ourselves unto death. And if you say, that sounds like a lot of work, 
But Paul has been saying it sounds like the source of a lot of joy. Unrelenting joy. Because if you and I are doing, did you hear that word doing? What we are made for, what God designed us for, then we will be fulfilling our life and thus find the sort of joy and contentment and peace that we are looking for because it's what Christ made us for. So you can have, and you should take, and by God's grace, please do take, unrelenting joy in your labors. Let's pray. Father, I just can't help but think again about Hebrews 11 and the sort of people that you were calling to great monumental tasks that were giant before them to build a huge ark. Seems like mundane activity. Seems like it maybe took 120 years if we read Genesis right to build that ark. There had to have been days where it was easy for Noah to think, what am I doing? But he saw the fruit of his labors eventually. Or like we just read from David in the Psalms, it would have been easy to think out there hiding from Saul while Saul is slaughtering people in David's name or for the reason to catch David. It would be easy to think, what am I doing? How do I know I'm going to be king? But David saw the fruit of his labors. So if any of us have that question today, what am I doing? Is it worth it? I'm pouring into these kids day after day, or I'm funding this ministry, or I'm doing whatever I feel like you've called me to do. What is it worth it? Help us to see the fruit of our labors and to take joy in that. Or it could be the question is asked, what am I doing? And we need to repent and do what we do need to do. But whatever the case is, I pray that you would give us obedient hearts to do what you're calling us to do, to be willing to take those risks, to be true disciples, to be willing to face friction if it's for the sake of you and your kingdom. Maybe it's not go 100 or 800 miles. Maybe it's to go to that neighbor we never thought we would go to. Whatever the case is, give us obedient hearts and help us to know what is really at stake, and that is unrelenting joy in the labors you're giving us to do. Father, we love you and we thank you, and we ask for obedient hearts by your Holy Spirit's power. In Jesus' name, amen.